Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In this off-year election, turnout was predictably low in many areas. Some areas saw a spike, but there were still many important issues addressed. Jackie Biskupski appears to have unseated Ralph Becker as mayor of Salt Lake City. Proposition 1 went down to defeat in the vast majority of counties in which it appeared, albeit narrowly in some cases. On the national scene, Ohio voters have rejected a marijuana legalization measure. Houston voters repealed an anti-discrimination ordinance. And Kentucky seems to be following its neighbors in trending Republican. We'll look ahead to the presidential election as well. We'll get reaction later in this hour from a USU associate professor of political science, uh, Mike Lands. But uh, right now we bring on uh, Frank Pignanelli, who along with LeVar Webb uh, writes a uh, um, opinion piece, uh, commentator for the uh, Deseret News. Uh, Frank Pignanelli uh, is a Salt Lake attorney, lobbyist, political advisor. He served for 10 years in the Utah House of Representatives, six of those years as minority leader. Frank Pignanelli, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. Uh, honored to be here. Uh, and I'm um, opening the phone lines and email if you would like to uh, comment. If you saw anything interesting uh, in the race uh, yesterday, the races, I should say, nationally or on a Utah level, uh, you are welcome to participate in the program. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. And uh, you can uh, email us to upraxis at gmail.com. So, Frank Pignanelli, what was uh, what was top of your mind uh, yesterday? What, anything surprising? What was uh, what struck well, you? Well, I guess a couple things. There was, first of all, to see there was, there was a perception of momentum of Ralph Becker because of all the ads and different things to see if he would make up the difference from the primary election, but it looks like that uh, did not happen. And so, uh, you know, the, the, that was the top of political's minds. The second thing was the Proposition 1 in the different county elections. And that uh, obviously has gone to defeat in some counties, which was you know, had a well-funded campaign, which, uh, you know, there was, there was the, the polls that had it ahead in Salt County but looked like that's going down to defeat, too. So that was really of interest. Another one that was interest uh, for a lot of political insiders was the Mill Creek Incorporation, because that had gone down to defeat a couple of years ago. It passed by a huge margin. And so you kind of throw everything into the mix about these results. And for some of us, it pretends that politics is changing somewhat in Utah, and because, you know, reflecting changes in technology and changes how uh, elected officials interact with the constituents and things like that. So that's why uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. I'm one of those sick, demented people that stayed up all night <laughs> watching the returns. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we're, we're glad you did. Um, so what do you think is changing? What, uh, did, I wonder if you could expand on that. What, what is the trend? Well, I think there's a couple things happening. That is, and, and, I, and I, I, I love to re- reference Donald Trump, and one of the things that I've mentioned to people is that Donald Trump and Jackie Biscopsi have absolutely nothing in common. I mean, they can't think of two different people, but they both have figured out that when there's angst with their target audiences and how to tap into that. You know, a year ago, no one gave Jackie a shot. No one gave Donald Trump a shot. <laughs> but they could sense something was out there. And Jackie Biskupski, to her credit, said, "I think there's, I think there's, a, there, there's problems with Ralph Becker's relationship with the voters." And every every political expert said, "No way, Ralph." gets reelected by huge margins because his politics are what Salt Lake City wants, uh, what he's accomplishing in terms of whether it's the bike lanes, the environmental uh, policies. That's everything that's all about Salt Lake City. But she was picking up something uh, that no one else saw. And she, she maintained that drumbeat. The election was all about Ralph and whether the people wanted Ralph-style leadership back again. And when they tried to shove it back to, you know, do you want Jack or not, she was very successful in pushing it back. So this election was all about style. And when I'm talking about changes in politics, Becker had a, you know, a full campaign you know, on television. I mean, he bombarded the airwaves, and it didn't mean anything. That's kind of like what's happening with Trump. Trump doesn't have any commercials, really. And, and yet uh, he's succeeding because of the 21st te- uh, te- technology. Jackie Biscupsi was really good in the social media, pushing it out, was really good in uh, being able to maintain a personal contact with the voters and didn't really rely on television. She just she, uh, she had some commercials at the end, I think, just to show that she was still around. So th- that is a big difference because it's always
always been traditionally the, the case that whoever dominates the television airwaves prevails in the election. And, you know, that's proving to be the excess that, that that's changing both in Utah and across the country. The other thing that's becoming more and more important, and I think it's especially important with social media, is the messaging. And I think that's why Prop 1 had some problems, because uh, the messaging, while it was very nice, and you had the beautiful parks and the nice sidewalks, that wasn't overcoming the taxpayers' angst of, aren't I already paying taxes for this, or concerns they may have where the money is going. And then, of course, with Mill Creek, uh, they did a, the Advocates for Sitting Corporation did a great job of messaging there. Now, messaging has been around for politics for 5,000 years, but with 21st century technology, you have to figure out how to use it, and it's becoming very apparent those who are mastering social uh, media are winning elections. So do you do, you do think that's the future? I mean, the Obama campaigns famously were micro-targeting, you know, using the new technology. You're, you're talking about social media. Um, where is that going to well, go? Donald Trump is pretty much dominating the presidential elections because of his Twitter account. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, it's I mean, he doesn't have commercials. He does. He barely has a field staff, but yet he is dominating because of what he is saying and his what, how he's saying he's tapping into it. Uh, he's not even uh, offering anything of substance, but it's how he's messaging it. And I, and I, I'm not necessarily saying that that's the surefire record of success, but what it is saying is it's upending. Uh, politics as usual, where it's always been, at least for the last 50 years, who dominates the airwaves. I mean, you still have to have that component, but it's obviously the case now that you can have high approval ratings, but not have a connection with the voters. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, what, that's what we're seeing, uh, we saw with Ralph Becker, that's what we're seeing with uh, members of Congress, and that they, they, they personally may have high approval ratings, but, but they're, uh, the party they belong to, the members of that party are so frustrated that they're willing to uh, take go for the non-establishment candidates like a Bernie Sanders or or a Donald Trump. So I think the angst that's in Utah is, is part of what's happening nationally, and we're, and we're seeing that in election results. Of course, different ends of the political spectrum. Trump to Biskupski, but uh, Biskupski, what what angst was she tapping into? What what were voters dissatisfied with about uh, Ralph Becker? And it's something that did not come across in the polling because, like I said, she, uh, he had high approval ratings. As when I started to see people who had served with Ralph taking such a strong stand against him, and and some of these community leaders who had benefited from his administration, what it was is that a couple things. And it was all about him, either his uh, inability when he would speak to groups of voters to communicate, you know, whether the, the concern that they had or excitement of what was happening in the city, because the city's doing very well. But he was unable to communicate that, and his administration was unable to communicate that. The second thing is they, they felt like the administration was unresponsive, even though, again, as I would say to all the wonderful programs the city has, there was just they felt that the, that the mayor and his administration were un, unresponsive. So there's a real disconnect um, between uh, what, the, what was happening in the city and with the voters. And, and you had some real personal feelings. A lot of community leaders felt like that they they had been dismissed by the mayor or by his administration, and that was percolating. It had been percolating for some time. It just wasn't coming up through the traditional research. And because I have to tell you, there were some strong feelings. The election was all about Ralph. It was not about yeah. There's people who like Jackie, but it was all about him. Mm-hmm. And he could not move it off that topic, which which, in my opinion, supports the uh, fact that there was something that uh, the majority of Salt Lake City voters did not like about his leadership style. You, you, you could tout all the accomplishments, and it wasn't, they weren't budging. Part of it, I think, was him. Part of it, I think, was something that he it was unavoidable, which is we see happening at a national level. That is just a frustration by citizens with their government. Um, and so I guess the incumbent is, uh, you know, is not going to do very well under that uh, that situation. Do you, and you've connected, uh, you know, Salt Lake Merrill race with uh, this the satisfaction, this angst that uh, Trump is is tapping into. Uh, do you think that angst was going back to Trump in the presidential election? Do you think that's going to be determinative come next year when people actually start voting? I think the smart incumbents going to have to figure out that if they're sitting on a high approval rating, that's no longer a guarantee that they're going to have an easy ride. That they're going to have to figure out, okay, what is, what are, uh, 
what's my relationship with with uh, my constituents? Uh, what are the problems that could happen? And 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 I still think incumbents could do well, but they just have to take the next step of okay, they may approve of my job, but do they? Is there a connection there so that if you know if there is a stumble like the, the Becker had with the police chief or something like that, that we can uh, that's a bump instead of a mountain uh, to climb over. So that's so the approval ratings uh, are no longer you know a strong guarantee of reelection. You you have to look at it. But on the other side, it also means that if you have low approval ratings, that uh, and that may not necessarily indicate that you're going to have a tough, uh, you know, really tough road to re-election. It just may be, they may not like you, but they may feel like they have a connection with you. So th- that's changed. I think the other thing that's changing, too, is that, uh, for, and this, is, this to me was a signal there was a problem with the Becker campaign. And, and you see this happening with such a lot of federal campaigns. They're all so worried about what the financial reports are going to say. And, and for example, I was, uh, a lot of people receiving calls in August, early August, uh, or it might have been late July, actually, uh, because Becker wanted to have a strong report on the financial report there, and it, pushing for contributions. And my thought was, I wouldn't worry so much about what the 15 people who actually follow this care about the financial contributions. You've got to worry about your primary election. But, but it, So it was indicative they were more worried about what was showing in the financial report than what was happening, the messaging. And you see that happen so much in politics. They're so worried about what they're reporting financially that they've lost sight of the messaging. And I think that has to be changed, too, for successful candidates. Yes, they need to raise money, but they need to be less focused on what the you know the half dozen politicals are, are, are saying about their fundraising and more worried about their connection with the constituents because 99% constituents could care less about how much money is in the bank at a financial reporting period. As we look forward to the, say, the presidential election, maybe some elections in uh, in Utah, um, and maybe connecting this back to the election that we just had, uh, it's you could make a case that issues aren't as important, at least in the primaries, presidential primaries, uh, you know, Trump's all over the place, and uh, and his opponents are trying to hammer him on the fact that he's flip-flopped and he's changed his position, but he but he seems to have tapped into this this angst, as you you call it. Is that what this election is going to be about? I, I, what it is is they, they you're right. They know that Donald Trump or Ben Carson are absolutely clueless, and they really are. I mean, they, they you listen to them, but first of all, they're fun to listen to. Uh, you know, for different reasons, they are fun to listen to, which I think that's part of it. The other is is that they know that the people who spew off the facts and figures, but there is a lack of confidence in our government and social institutions right now. So, having that government experience means absolutely nothing. And so, you're right. It's the, the deep policy discussions are not resonating because there's a lack of trust. Saying, well, you may know all about this, but were you part of the problem? And I believe there's a lot of factors. I mean, our economic rebound is not as great as is traditionally after a recession. And, and there's, uh, there's a real frustration level that uh, Congress and state governments are not reacting appropriately to what should be a stronger economic rebound. I think also it's just great societal changes that are happening. And so the, your traditional you know, expertise in policy means absolutely nothing in the political battleground. It's more of, are you connecting? And so I think when Trump calls people stupid, <laughs> it's resonating. Because, like, yeah, you know, these, all these smart people with these wonderful degrees, they can't seem to figure out our economics or our international affairs. They keep on getting it wrong. So that, that you know, tapping, does it, does it eventually succeed for Trump? We probably not. Uh, you know, what I'm saying with Jackie is, I mean, Jackie was very policy-oriented. She said, I want to pursue some different programs. But you've got to remember, look at Jackie Biskupski and Ralph Becker. There's almost no difference policy-wise in terms of their politics at the legislature, their politics of uh, uh, things for, for nationally. It was all about style. And remember, uh, Ralph Becker is not some crazy lunatic jerk. He's a very nice guy, very easygoing. It's impossible to despise Ralph Becker, but it was it was uh, a leadership style. It was a conscious decision by Salt Lake City voters. They did not want his leadership style. Mm. So, yeah, it may not have been based on policy, but it was a conscious decision. And you can't say that uh, Biscupsi dominated because of uh, the airways or anything like that. No, she was able to say, I know you want to change. I'm offering that change. 
they scooped it up. Uh, this this idea of being an outsider and that gaining traction that that reminds me. I'm, I go back to 1976, uh, Jimmy Carter, who rode that wave, and of course, we just came off of Watergate and and uh, Vietnam and a bunch of other problems. There's a Doonesbury cartoon I well remember that which which tweaked uh, Jimmy Carter's message only slightly. It, it uh, in the cartoon he said he he'd been to Washington once to pick up a peanut subsidy, but he but he hadn't looked. He hadn't opened his eyes. Uh, so I wonder, is there a parallel? Is, 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 do you have to be an outsider to, to win in this, you know, in the next year's elections? I, I think you have to betray yourself as an outsider, or you have to betray yourself as not part of the problem. And, and you have these, when you watch the, the presidential debates, they, they're desperately, they, they figure out they need to say they're desperately trying to portray themselves as outsiders, but they get caught up in the gobbledygook, whereas, you know, you have Trump and Carson just throw stuff out. And the one person that seems to be able to punch through a little bit because of his personal stories and the way he talks is Rubio. That's why I think you're, you're seeing some people saying maybe Rubio is, a, is the somewhat establishment candidate that, that punches through in all that. You, you, that the, there's such a frustration level that just that's why George Jeb Bush, I think, is having a hard time. because he's been talking about his days as a Florida governor and all these things, and that's just not resonating because that's not what people want to hear. Hmm. Uh, just one more thing back on the Salt Lake Merrill race. Um, did, did sexual identity politics have any part at all in, in this? I think it was very subtle. I, I do. I, I, I think I, Salt Lake City, you know, having been. Now, I'm a Utah native, and having spent my, almost my entire adult life in Salt Lake City, it's all about the causes here. Um, you know, we, we enjoy our causes. And I think there was some, some of uh, that was, okay, that not only do we get, we can get a new mayor, but you know, this openly uh, lesbian mayor uh, she, who, who, who excelled at the legislature. She wasn't somebody who was banished when she served up there, but she actually got along with lawmakers. So I think there was some of that that went on. You couldn't claim that, that Ralph was not progressive. He was extremely progressive and supportive of everything like that. I think it was there was some undercurrents there, but Jackie Biscuffsy, to her credit, really didn't play it that hard. Because I think, number one, she didn't have to, but secondly, she knew what was going to carry you through was not that. It was going to be it was about Ralph. So again, the campaign was all about Ralph. It was not about, uh, about Jackie. Hmm. You just joined us. We are uh, recapping the uh, elections, 2015 elections, the so-called off-year election. Turnout is usually low. It was in many areas, not in Salt Lake City, at about 48 percent. And if we call that a, a big turnout election, that is, you know, uh, if we pull back, that's that's kind of depressing. Um, when Australia tunes turns out, you know, in the in the 90 percents. But anyway, 48 percent, not bad for for an off-year election. And uh, it looks like we'll have a new mayor in Salt Lake City. Proposition one went down to defeat in most counties. I think it uh, looks like it's winning in Weber County. Um, and uh, several other issues were decided uh, on the national level as well, and uh, now we turn our full attention to the presidential election uh, for next year. And uh, coming up, we'll be talking with uh, USU Associate Professor of Political Science Michael Lyons. Right now we're talking with Deseret News commentator Frank Pignanelli. You can uh, join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Frank Pignanelli, I want to get your take on uh, the vote in Houston. This is getting played na- nationwide, and uh, it, you know, it was opposite decision from what uh, the Utah legislature did. Uh, Houston voters have repealed an anti-discrimination ordinance, and it appears that uh, the the anti-campaign was very successful with their mantra, no men in women's bathrooms. Yeah, again, it, it kind of goes to that, uh, I mean, I... I'm a, I, personally, that's uh, unfortunate. I think this happened, but it goes to that, that what I've been saying for the last half hour, which is about the messaging. Very simple message, um, you know, using the scare tactic of that, and they were unable to to um, come back. I think they will come back. The the fight over accommodations, which we saw happen in the '60s in the civil rights, that's that's going to be the new fight for the next several years in this country and like, on the accommodations as we. Uh, you know, because at least the civil rights, the the, the fights where you know were, were happening, it was a very, um, as you know, sometimes bloody struggle. At least this is a peaceful struggle. But it, it, you, what we're witnessing, what we're seeing in Houston, is going to be the fight over accommodations that, 
uh, and across the country. I mean, we may have a similar um, dispute here in Utah because the discussion over accommodations not ended here. We had the anti-discrimination, but they reserved accommodations for another day. So that's that's going to be the topic for the rest of this decade and early next decade. Mm. So you you think this is probably going to get turned around at some point in Houston? I do too. The 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 if you look at the trend lines and the polling. It's you know the, the the population under thirty and even under thirty five and forty, they they don't care about these issues. They they have, it's not that they tolerate same sex marriage and things like that. They accept it. and They embrace it. So it's just a matter of the clock ticking. I want to talk about uh, the election process in Utah? And as as you know, Frank Pugnelli, the uh, a federal judge, uh, ha- has ruled that the state cannot force political parties to open their primaries. And uh, so that goes against uh, Senate Bill 54. Um, what, what do you think of this ruling? What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it, it's a disappointment because a lot of people, even those who lean Republican or not retro Republicans, want to be able to participate in the primaries. To me, the bigger thing is, is Chairman Evans saying they will do everything they can to prevent a candidate and won't recognize a candidate who takes a petition route. Now, the petition route, as opposed to the delegate route, still, still, both are still allowed under the law. So, so that sets up an interesting scenario. You're going to have a candidate who pursues to get on the ballot on a lawful means through a petition, and the chairman of the party is going to try to stop him or say that that he or she's not a real Republican. <laughs> so this is this is this could be an interesting dynamic that's occurring. Because a lot of I got to say, you had some Republican lawmakers who took bold and courageous votes with the view that okay, I may have problems with my delegates at convention, but I'm able to get on the ballot through the petition uh, route. And now that they're being told by this late in the game in November that their party is going to try to push push against that. So, so, so this does have an effect. You're you're saying this does have an effect on on the way legislators legislate. Well, I think they were. Some were assuming that if okay, if I if I take a vote, knowing that's going to irritate some of my more conservative delegates, I do have an option to go on the ballot. But now they, they've got okay. Am I going to irritate the entire party structure by trying to go on the ballot through petition? So you're you're you're. It's it's fortunate because lawmakers should not have to have to worry about these kind of things, uh, and, and especially come this late day. I, I'm just a firm believer that that SB 54 passed. Um, was challenged, and wh- why do you want to create problems for members of your own party uh, this way? I, I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't see why Chairman Evans is doing this, other than to satisfy the delegates. Uh, Judge Newfer, uh, his part of his rationale was the First Amendment uh, grants the freedom of association. He uh, cited, uh, for example, the Constitution Party has four thousand members in Utah, and if uh, the party was forced to open its primaries to some six hundred thousand unaffiliated voters. Um, that that you know would damage their freedom of association would would, would skew, of course, uh, that maybe their results. Of course, on the other hand, the Republican Party, uh, the, you know, their primary is the de facto election. Sometimes that's probably impetus behind uh, this this uh, drive to open the primaries. Which is why I get frustrated with the judiciary because it's not, in my opinion, it's not a practical. You know, you had when you had the Supreme Court decisions of the 1960s. They said the Democratic primaries in the southern states were the de facto elections, and therefore you had to open them up, especially to people of, of color, to participate. Uh, in my opinion, when you have, uh, I don't begrudge Republicans for doing well in Utah, but I do believe where you have primaries are essentially the the de facto general elections. It should be opened up uh, so that people can participate in them. Hmm. I want to talk. And, and, uh, uh, I yeah, wish yeah, was a little more practical on that. Uh, yeah, it seems like uh, Chairman Evans is holding a hard line on this. He's, you know, as you right. said, threatening to sue. Um, I want to uh, talk about the death penalty. It, it seems it was remarkable to me. I've followed you know death penalty arguments for years, and uh, Republicans at the legislature are now expressing concerns about the death penalty. One prominent Republican uh, said that his views or views up on the hill are are evolving. Was the quote on the death penalty? And yeah, I, I mean, I've heard this before. <laughs> You've heard it before, okay? <laughs> because of the cost, and it and it does. It's, it's 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 very costly to have a death penalty imposed. You know, maybe ten or twenty years worth of appeals, and and overturning the DNA. But I, 
I'd be I'd be shocked if it was uh, repealed anytime soon here in Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Senator Madsen's quote. I'm quoting this is uh, Fox 13. Um, There's some new aspects of reality that I've become aware of that have led me to take a different look at this issue. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure exactly what uh, what new aspects of reality he's talking about, but it, it seemed to be there was a bit of a shift. But you're, you're saying, well, there is. I think what's happened to legislature, it's a good thing. Uh, what you do is, you, what you have is, you have a bunch of uh, conservative and oftentimes libertarian lawmakers who are saying, okay, what's in the best interest um, economically for the state? You know, what what works? And and so that's why you had some changes to the justice system last session because it's like saying, okay, we can pound our chests all we want about these mandatory sentences for drug. Uh, violations and things like that, but we're, we're not rehabilitating anyone. All we're doing is warehousing them. So, to the credit of these of these lawmakers who are saying, you know, yeah, it, it may make great rhetoric, but it's not accomplishing our goals. That's what I see happening up there. You see them questioning all the buildings that are being placed on the campus, as saying, is that a good return? Those are all really important questions, and they're applying that to the death penalty, which is, are we getting any type of return for all the expenses that it's costing us? Mm-hmm. That's just such an emotional question, though, that I, I tend to believe in Utah, the emotional will outweigh any type of a, uh, economic analysis. What do you think is going to happen with the potential Medicaid expansion? Seems seems like uh, you know a lot of Republicans are really digging their heels in uh, against the governor. Yeah, I, I actually think it's going to get done, but it's not going to get done with, with, with what's been proposed. You do have some economic sectors of the healthcare industry that really benefit under uh, Medicaid expansion. And I do think you're going to see a proposal, it may not be in the 2016 session, possibly the 2017 session, that taps into those so that you satisfy the concerns uh, that the conservatives in the House have about an ongoing state obligation that's always increasing. And that's, that's a legitimate question. But it also takes care of the, 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 the whole and the coverage. I actually think they end up doing something. Um, and I, there's, there's a lot of talk up there. When you're up there as much as I am, there's a way to do this. It just, do you have the courage to kind of take on some of these entities that are going to benefit? And I actually think they will do it. Hmm. Finally, I know we need to let you go. Um, it's a year away, the presidential election. Um, never too early. Never, <laughs> never too early. And it's been going on for at least a year. Uh, yeah, that's depressing. Uh, you, who are the nominees, do you think? Well, you know, on the Democratic side, it's uh, I think it's probably a slam dunk, but. Yeah, I think it's a slam dunk if, and that's always the big capital I, capital F, if if the Justice Department ends up not doing anything on the email stuff, it's a Lance, you know, he really takes it. If if they take action on her, I don't know whether it's indictment or whether whatever, it could be a stumbling block for her, and you may see the reentry of Biden or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, nationally, uh, you know, I made a prediction in my column that no one could predict. This was six months ago, and everyone poo-pooed me and said, "Oh no, it's Bush. It's going to be Bush." You know, you could still, if Bush has a machine, if he can just hold on, he might be able to, to grind it out in the, in the Super Tuesday primaries in March with the, if, 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 when Carson Trump ultimately collapse. But the name I keep on hearing more and more is Rubio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think Rubio's uh, got, a, got a shot? He's got a shot mm-hmm. because what he, if, you, if you listen to him talk, he's very shrewd. And he's picked up on, it's not so much... The messenger, it's the message, and he and he talks very much about the future. But he taps into this. We got to talk to the youth and things like that. So I, so I think he has some Republicans saying, okay, he he he's our one shot to take on Hillary because of he's able to attract those audiences of those who may have felt disenfranchised. That's why I think that he's getting more and more attention, and he also did quite well in the debate too. Well, we'll leave it there with uh, Frank Pignelli. We know you have to have to let you go. Uh, Desert News commentator and uh, uh, long time on the scene in uh, in Utah, he was a former member of the uh, Utah legislature, who was a minority leader there. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with USU Associate Professor of Political Science Mike Lyons. We'll look at uh, Utah scene and we'll... Uh, We'll look at the the national scene as well. Looks like a lot of conservative success yesterday. We'll ask him what that portends for the presidential race uh, coming up next year. Uh, Many other uh, uh, issues to uh, address as well. And we'd love to hear from you. 1-800-826-1495. What's your take? Or upraxis.gmail.com. More following the break. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, delivering student scholarships through programs like the Aggie License Plate. Information at usu.edu slash alumni slash a plate. A breakthrough to help solve a major problem. The greatest challenge facing humanity this century, I'm convinced, is finding the energy to power a civilization of 10 billion people. Renewable energy is front and center in that challenge. And a new organic flow battery could store that renewable power for when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The Cache Valley Transit District is discussing ways to fund public transportation. After busing passengers for free, it may now require a fare to sustain a system that seats riders from Hiram to Lewiston. Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune's Utah Public Insight Network would like to know if going from no fee to charging a fare for bus service makes sense. Share your insights, opinions, and thoughts online at upr.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for uh, tuning in today. Of course, uh, we had an election yesterday, and it's uh, the so-called off-year election. Odd year, and it's just before the uh, presidential election next year, but uh, several significant uh, results. Uh, One in Houston, for example, that we've talked about. Houston voters repealed an anti-discrimination ordinance. Uh, Kentucky seems to be following its neighbors and trending Republican and neighbors in the South there. Ohio voters rejected a marijuana legalization measure. And we're looking ahead now to the presidential election as well. We welcome in now uh, Michael Lyons, who is USU Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to be with you, Tom. Um, so I don't know if anything in Utah that stood out to you before we turn to the national scene? Well, the mayor's election in Salt Lake City was certainly a landmark. And uh, I think it will catch the attention of the rest of the nation. And it drives home how different Salt Lake City is than the rest of the state and how different it will probably continue to grow. Mm-hmm. I want to get your reaction to uh, Judge Newford's ruling um, validating uh, Senate Bill 54, at least part of it. Uh, he's saying that freedom of association trumps the state's uh, right to control elections. And so he's agreeing with the Republican Party that their uh, primary should be able to be closed. Well, I am a vigorous supporter of the First Amendment, so you're not going to see me uh, quarrel with a decision that upholds the right of uh, free association. I d- was listening to the program as I drove up to the studio, and I do agree with Mr. Pignanelli that um, some of the practical consequences of this are unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean in how legislators act in the legislature, for one? Well, in a variety of ways, yes. Um I I wish we could all hop in a time machine and rewrite the First Amendment and parts of the Constitution to account for the role that political parties play in elections. It's probably the biggest oversight in the Constitution. And other nations have regulatory structures for things like political parties. Uh, not that I'm suggesting that the, the First Amendment isn't terribly important, but, um, you know, The First Amendment sometimes leads to unfortunate outcomes. Mm -hmm. I was uh, reading some things about uh, Fred Thompson, former Tennessee senator. Of course, he died recently. And uh, I I was reminded in reading, I'd forgotten this, that he got into that presidential election in September, you know, the year before, which which this year would be, you know, Joe Biden uh, (laughs) was contemplating something like that, and he decided it was too late. it just seems like the presidential election stretches longer and longer. Well, uh, I'm not convinced on the Republican side it is necessarily too late for Mitt Romney possibly to enter. Not that I have any reason to believe he will, but someone with that level of name recognition who could raise that much money quickly, um, it's not too late for Jeb Bush to get in the race. That was a joke, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very sad. Very, very sad. But 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 true. Um, it's it, it's. 
I wouldn't say it's wide open on the Republican side right now. I think Marco Rubio clearly is the favorite to win the nomination for a variety of reasons. Um, Jeb Bush might come back to life at some point. But what I find most remarkable is the fact that two political outsiders with no governmental experience in combination are winning about 40 to 45 percent of the support in polls, and they've done this month after month now. Talk about Donald Trump and Ben Carson. Yes, yes. And granted, the polls now are very poor predictors of nomination outcomes. It's just too soon. And things change radically. Uh, you know, at this point, um, Rudy Giuliani was, well, maybe not at this point, but in, 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 in 2011, uh, Rudy Giuliani was a very strong contender for the Republican nomination. And, um, you know, it, things move very rapidly once you get to Iowa and New Hampshire. I don't expect either Carson or Trump to have any legs coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire. But the fact that these two people with those kinds of credentials are capturing so much support reflects a very, very high level of antagonism towards Washington, D.C., disillusionment with the performance of the political system. And this is nothing new, but the level of intensity uh, has grown to unprecedented levels, at least in the post-World War II era. Mm. Is this isolated on the Republican side, or is, is Bernie Sanders tapping into the same Bernie teeth? Sanders is tapping into exactly the same thing. And I seriously doubt that a year ago, very many commentators would have predicted that Bernie Sanders would have the traction that he has acquired. Um, he's not going to arrest the nomination away from Hillary Clinton unless there is some profound scandal or some other unforeseen thing that, that turns up. But, but it is an indication of how disillusioned the, the American public is. And one of the things I would like to know about the election yesterday is what the national turnout levels were and where turnout was high and where it was not high. Uh, it appeared to me that it was fairly high in Ohio with that marijuana measure on the ballot. And we see uh, prop ballot propositions like that produce high turnout. And again, even voting against something like that is a sign of dissatisfaction with government. It's, it's participating in government, doing circumventing the normal process. And, and when you give people opportunities to do that, you see turnout spike. Um, and I, I think turnout was probably quite low elsewhere. And therefore, the results probably tell us very little. Hmm. But I, I, I really need to see those turnout figures and compare those turnout figures with the turnout figures from 2011 or 2013. Mm -hmm. So uh, if there is this big outsider sweat, dissatisfaction with government, uh, is, is that going to favor just about any Republican opponent to Hillary Clinton? She's the ultimate insider. I mean, Marco Rubio, for example, he's a senator, but he's more outsider than... Hillary Clinton. Right. Marco Rubio is in a position that is somewhat comparable to Barack Obama in late 2007. And, yeah, he's barely set foot in the Senate at this point. And um, he is Latino, and he is young, and he has a fascinating personal story, and he's articulate. And so I see him as somewhat of a Republican variation on, on Barack Obama and potentially a very strong candidate who could tap into this anti-Washington resentment, even though he's a member of the Senate. And you're right, Hillary Clinton, no one symbolizes uh, government as it always has been for the last 30 years more than Hillary Clinton does at this juncture. So it's a difficult race for, uh, for Hillary Clinton. The one thing about Marco Rubio is that he is not well vetted at this point nationally. And when you have a relatively inexperienced candidate like this on the national scene, usually there are significant mistakes. Usually there are revelations yet to come. And so... 
you know, I don't think it's possible even to predict remotely who could possibly win this election in a year. Uh, but Marco Rubio cer- certainly appears to be a formidable Republican candidate. Mm. Would he uh, make a dent in the advantage, seems like a clear advantage Democrats now have on with the Latino population? That's a fascinating question, and I would really like to hear what Latino political scholars or political commentators would have to say about this. Um, Cuban Americans and Mexican Americans and Central Americans do not necessarily have that much in common. And this is a wide open question at this point. Um, My guess is that being Latino will probably help him, but it's also going to hurt him. Uh, There's racism out there. There, I think there's more racism than a lot of commentators are willing to acknowledge. Uh, I've seen a national comparison of the vote for John Kerry in 2004 with the vote for Barack Obama in 2008, and it's astonishing how many counties in the United States gave John Kerry five and even ten percentage points more of the vote than Barack Obama got in 2008, and it's very hard to explain that other than on the basis of race. Mm Uh, so I think that there is some racially oriented, uh, sadly, racially oriented anti-Latino vote out there. And conceivably in states like West Virginia or Ohio, possibly even Pennsylvania, this could surface. So I'm not convinced that being Latino is Marco Rubio's strongest suit. I think it's his youth and the mm-hmm. fact that he can depict himself as an outsider. Hmm. Uh, It seems like for, I don't know, the last several election cycles, Republicans have have done very well. But the conventional wisdom is that uh, the Democrats still have an advantage, structural advantage, in the presidential level. Um, Yeah, there may be a slight structural advantage for the Democratic Party. There's a lot of cross-currents here. Uh, On social issues, the electorate is clearly turning towards positions that are more liberal, gay marriage, marijuana legalization being two prominent examples. We're even seeing a fair amount of movement on gun control. But the Republicans have been much more successful at tapping into this anti-Washington, anti-government sentiment that is overwhelms almost everything else out there. And, um, you know, as I often say, I think we are still reacting to Ronald Reagan famously pronouncing that government isn't the solution, government is the problem. And bit by bit, voter belief that Reagan spoke the truth with those words has eroded support for the Democratic Party and strengthened the Republicans. And the Democratic Party... Hillary Clinton, in 2016, has to make a case for government. Why is government necessary? Not perfect, but necessary and beneficial. And I haven't seen the Democratic Party do that. Something else about the Democratic Party is almost all the prominent leaders in the party are in their 60s and 70s at this point, including Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Barack Obama is the only exception. So who is the one conspicuously successful Democratic politician in the United States since Bill Clinton? And that's Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And when Bill Clinton was successful, Bill Clinton was young. And the Democrats need a new generation of leadership. Uh, It's going to be a difficult election for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. I want to get back to this 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 angst, this uh, outsider angst, uh, angst with government, you know, anti-government feeling. Uh, but it almost seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we 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 don't like government, so we send people who are going to hold to their promises to change. This is what Ted Cruz talks about all the exactly. time. Exactly. Uh, you know, hold people accountable. Don't make promises you're not going to keep. Um, and and uh, purity is, is the mantra. Then yes. you, you you can't compromise, and therefore you can't get things done, and it's, it's just a self-fulfilling loop. 
That's I, I think that's spot on correct, and it works very strongly to the advantage of the Republican Party. You elect people like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee, um, and their purism makes government much less able to make decisions to confront issues. And so voters become progressively more disgusted with government. And so they elect more people who are even more pure. And, you know, it, it, and somehow the Democrats have to break this cycle up. And I wish I had some brilliant strategic advice to offer, but I, 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 I certainly think that you're correct. And there are problems out there that are solvable right now. Social Security is a solvable problem. Uh, the situation with the Affordable Care Act, I think, is solvable. Um, their trade is solvable. The tax code, almost everybody agrees that the tax code is destructive to national economic prosperity, unfair in dozens of ways, and the parties conceivably could get together and rewrite the tax code significantly in a way beneficial to the nation. So it, problems can be solved if we can overcome some of this purism. And it's going to take strong leadership in both political parties to do that. Uh, Paul Ryan certainly seems to be a pragmatic person who is willing to sit down and talk about solutions that might go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I wonder, um, I wonder if you'd expand on that. Uh, is, it seemed like it was Paul Ryan or nobody after, after Speaker Boehner you know, resigned or announced his resignation. Um, that Paul Ryan, I think, does have a you know show a practical streak, but with the Freedom Caucus and others, is is anybody going to be able to? I just don't have House? enough information about the internal workings of the House Republican Party to get any sense of where that's going to go. But I I think it is going to be a real challenge for Paul Ryan to hold that party together. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the bottom line is. You're not going to take some of these significant problems on unless in certain ways you are willing to raise taxes. To reform taxes, some taxes go down, other taxes go up. And the language that is used, we're going to close loopholes, we're going to end uh, various kinds of tax expenditures, disguises the reality. But the reality is to reform taxes and probably to reform Social Security and almost certainly to reform Medicare, taxes will need to go up. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if we talk a little bit about Senator Lee. Uh, he's up for re-election next year. It seems like he's been making some moves to try to reassure those who uh, have some concerns with him. Um, wonder if, if you agree with that and if, if what that means. Um, I think he will probably have clear sailing. I think uh, a challenge would have appeared from within the Republican Party already, and somebody would have already raised significant money. And no, I expect him to win re-election with barely breaking a sweat, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, if Jim Matheson had chosen to take him on, Jim Matheson might have turned that into a very close race. but. Uh, for uh, for a number of reasons, Matheson chose not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we were talking earlier, and, and we were talking about uh, you know Senator Cruz, and I've been trying to picture a Cruz presidency. Um, you know, he 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 makes his bones. He 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 gets a lot of his appeal from uh, you know railing against the system. A president Cruz would have to govern, wouldn't he? Uh, what would what would that look like? Would would he necessarily have to change, or, or could you run an insurgent presidency? You know, I'd have to be a better political historian to try to find a precedent for a situation in which someone 
with views that radical and that much at variance with mainstream Washington had been elected to see how much they were able to backtrack towards the center. Uh, One thing about Ted Cruz that I understand to be true is that he is not well-liked by other Republicans. And uh, when you're not well-liked by your own political party, it becomes exceedingly difficult to lead. And there is a precedent for that in recent history, and that's Jimmy Carter. And frankly, some of Barack Obama's difficulties in his first term stem from the fact that he did not work closely with other Democrats and was not regarded regarded warmly on Capitol Hill. So I would think a Ted Cruz presidency might prove to be horrendously problematic. Mm-hmm. I'll just have 30 seconds. Uh, I wonder maybe your 30-second take, and this is unfair to you, but uh, of what the next innovation will be. We've, we've gone, seems like we've gone... Uh, in part away from television to social media to, you know, the micro-targeting that the Obama administration or campaigns have been famous for. What's what's next on the horizon? Well, micro-targeting is going to be carried to a new level. And uh, one of the things we're seeing is all the old rules, axioms, I should say, not legal rules, but axioms of the way campaign finance works, blown into pieces. And Money keeps flowing into the system at an ever-growing rate, and the money will continue to alter the landscape radically. We are out of time. We'll uh, take. We'll, of course, we're now heavily into the presidential election uh, or, or season for 2016. It'll be fascinating to see what happens, and uh, Michael Lyons, I'm, I'm sure, will be following this with great interest. Michael Lyons, Associate uh, Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Tom. And we thank Frank Prignanelli for being with us in the uh, earlier half of the program. Hope you join us tomorrow. Uh, we have a series of programs uh, continuing on housing, alternative housing. We're talking about straw bale housing, sustainable housing tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us. Join me then. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. This is State of the Arts. Utah has a strong theatrical tradition. The first major building in Salt Lake City was a theater. St. George built the Electric. Gunnison built the Casino Star. Park City and Ogden built Egyptian theaters. So when industrialist George Thatcher planned the first grand building in downtown Logan in 1890, of course he built a bank, with a theater above it. The Thatcher Opera House reigned for 24 years before it was destroyed by fire in 1912. The Journal reported the worst fire in Cache Valley history on the front page, several pages later reporting the sinking of the Titanic. The loss inspired construction of the Kane Lyric, Ellen Eccles, and Utah Theaters, three historic theaters on one block. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, managing the historic Ellen Nichols Theater and Thatcher Young Mansion.